So what I'd like to reflect on this evening is, is the dialogue between mindfulness and wise effort. Now, if you were to do a word search in the early texts of the Buddhist teaching, it would become apparent that the word sati, usually translated as mindfulness, and the word padana, usually translated as effort, are two of the most frequently used words in the path of insight and awakening. And both of these words are generally, well, pretty much always linked to another word, which is sama, which again is usually translated as wise or skillful or right. So we're talking about wise mindfulness and wise effort. Now, the usual translation of sati that we're most familiar with, of course, is as mindfulness. Um, I, I have been told that when the early translators first started to kind of decipher these texts from the Pali, that they couldn't find a, a single word for sati. And so they introduced the word mindfulness, which in, I've been told has actually was borrowed from the Gospels. And classically, this word sati, it's probably more accurately translated as a present moment recollection, which is actually the phrase we've been using here on the retreat. Now, mindfulness, or this present moment recollection, I will use the word mindfulness. I don't have an allergy to it or anything like that. And it's easier than present moment recollection because it's only one word. But, um, anyway, mindfulness is, is a very broad spectrum word uh, in the Buddhist teaching. And, and I think it's very helpful and very important to understand how the very many ways, very many dimensions of mindfulness. And the Buddha often used a number of similes to actually describe these nuances or dimensions. But sometimes mindfulness is portrayed as being a guardian of the heart, a guardian of the mind, a quality that really protects the mind, the heart, from surges, surges of habit patterns that lead to distress. Sometimes sati, uh, mindfulness, is likened to a surgeon's probe, the way that a surgeon might use an instrument to investigate a wound, to really understand the nature of the wound. So a diagnosis could be made and the causes of the wound understood so that a prognosis and a course of treatment really could be offered. Um, sometimes sati has this nuance or this meaning of this, this kind of simple knowing. This is a very common part of this. A simple knowing, that capacity for intentional attention that just knows what is actually occurring. 
Sometimes uh, the simile that is used for mindfulness is that of a cow herder. Um, and in one, one description, mindfulness is described as the cow herder who's keeping careful watch over his flock of cows so they don't go running off into fields that have just been planted. And so they're kept kind of close to home. And in an, another simile that the cow herder is used that, uh, as a way of describing a more kind of spacious overview, that once the crops have been harvested and the cows are in sight, kind of just allowing, sitting back and relaxing and allowing just that, that more spacious view of the herd. Sometimes mindfulness, an element of mindfulness is described as restraint, guarding the sense doors. And the simile that's often used is that of a gatekeeper at a city who attends the gate to the city and really discerns really who it's helpful to welcome into the city and who it's helpful not to welcome into the city. And this is a quality of discernment about what is helpful and what is unhelpful, what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. Now, padana is usually described as wise effort. And so wise effort in this path is actually concerned with how we engage with and how we respond to everything that is revealed to us in the light of mindfulness. And wise effort is really concerned or or speaks about the cultivation. In fact, the the word in Pali for meditation is bhavana, which actually means to cultivate or to bring into being. So the Buddha actually presents this path as one in which we are cultivating and bringing into being all of the qualities of heart and mind that are healing, that are liberating, that are skillful, that are helpful. And wise effort that is concerned with, with cultivating and deepening our capacities for mindfulness, for investigation, for energy, for joy, for compassion, for equanimity for awakening the heart. Wise effort is concerned with developing and cultivating our capacity and and learning the lessons of relinquishing, releasing reactive habit patterns of aversion, of ill will, of clinging and confusion and anxiety, really the patterns that are often revealed to us in the light of mindfulness that create and recreate moment to moment distress and bewilderment and confusion and suffering. Now, interesting that this word for wise effort is also used interchangeably with another word, which in Pali is virya. And virya is often translated as courage or heroism. So it's the essence of wise effort. It's a quality of courage and heroism. And I know sometimes when Western practitioners hear this, 
us speak about heroism, it can often feel slightly sort of dramatic, you know, a bit sort of overstated. And, you know, as you hang out here in your sweatpants, you know, and kind of hoping to run into a breath every now and again, you know, you, you might find it not so easy to use that word for yourself, you know, that you're on a heroic journey. Um, but I think one should never underestimate actually, the degree of courage that is actually needed for us to stand still in the midst of all of the events and experiences of our lives, rather than following those familiar and some ways more accessible pathways of avoidance and flight and numbness. There's a lot of courage actually needed to swim against the tide of so many of the historical and embedded habit patterns of reactivity. Now, sati, uh, mindfulness as a present moment recollection, is, is something much wider and much deeper in my understanding than just paying attention or just inhabiting the moment. Although, you know, this is actually some, quite something in itself. But recollection, it has a big landscape. Part of our present moment recollection is remembering or recollecting some of our deepest longings, our deepest aspirations for kindness, for compassion, for generosity, for connectedness. Some of those longings that really live so, so clearly within the human heart. This present moment recollection, I think, is also remembering or recollecting our sense of capacity or genuine possibility to really live an embodied life, our capacities for very profound insight and peace and wakefulness. I think one of the real, I think, gifts of the Buddha was the remarkable confidence he had in the human heart for awakening. And it, this really wasn't an, a, a kind of a selective confidence. This was actually a confidence that he saw actually in every human heart. In fact, when people would come to him, you know, filled with the doubts and the uncertainties that I'm sure you've met he would also answer by saying that if I did not have confidence that this was possible for you, this awakening, I would not ask this effort of you. But because I have confidence in your capacity for awakening, I ask this effort of you. We recollect and we remember, and I think sometimes this requires a certain stillness and a certain quietude, a certain space for reflection, to recollect and to remember our, our aspirations to live a creative, alive, responsive life, fully engaged with the world around us. There's also a recollection of our knowing the lessons that we have already learned from our lives about what leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress. 
Now, sati in the in the Buddha's teaching, this quality of mindfulness has a has a very extended um, family, you might say. And certainly, mindfulness has a family of origin. And we might say that the family of origin of, of mindfulness, of course, is integrity and ethics, the words, thoughts, acts of kindness that treasure our own well-being and that treasure the well-being of all beings and the commitment to that through how we engage with the world. Part of that family of origin of ethics, of course, we've already spoken about, is restraint of the thoughts and words and acts that may harm and consciously caring for the kind of footprint that we, each of us, leave with our thoughts, our words, and our acts, and our choices. The kind of footprint that we leave upon the world, upon the hearts of others, and upon our own hearts. The quality of metta that I spoke about this afternoon is also part of the family of origin of mindfulness, that willingness to befriend all events and experiences that we meet, forsaking, really forsaking, the patterns of ill will and abandonment. But sati also, mind, I want to use the word sati because it sort of has this full picture Sati also has this more extended family of patience, of serenity, of investigation, of compassion. So mindfulness in the, in the Buddhist uh, path is, is not a quality that stands alone, and it's certainly not an end in itself. It is actually a vehicle for awakening. I encourage you to reflect on your own experience and to be aware of what happens in moments of heedlessness or forgetfulness or in the moments when mindfulness is actually not really present. And how the way that moments of heedlessness or forgetfulness, moments of disconnection, really seem to open a door They open a door to a world of impulse. They open a door to a world of reactivity. And the way in which those impulses and reactivity really play out in many of our psychological and emotional patterns that actually really just undermine our well-being and, and wakefulness and freedom. And what we begin to see in our own experience is that mindfulness, or sati, opens another door. And through that door comes our capacities for well-being, for resilience, for insight, and for a genuine freedom of heart and mind. So this evening I really like to focus on how these two qualities, of, or these two threads, of wise effort and wise mindfulness really are interacting and the kind of dialogue between them. Now, in classical Buddhist teaching, this dialogue between wise effort and mindfulness, of course, is spoken about very ex explicitly. 
Now, understandably, in you know uh, situations like eight-week programs or some uh, contemporary mindfulness-based applications, wise effort is really not spoken about so explicitly, and I think for very good reasons. You know, there's certain a lot of wise caution about setting up anything that could sort of degenerate into striving or to judgment and the all-too-familiar territories of success and failure. But any of you, for you here, you see how much effort you're making. And for any of you, of course, who, who have any involvement in teaching mindfulness, you will be very aware of how much effort your clients or patients are actually making. And, you know, sometimes I'm, you know, uh, quite awed by people's courage and skillful effort on retreats. Now, you probably have noticed here (laughs) in your own experience that really considerable effort is required of us to be present and, and to, to really begin to walk new pathways of, in our hearts and minds and lives. And even after so many years of teaching, I, every retreat I, I feel actually so touched and so awed by the, the kind of courage and integrity and skillful effort that I see people make. And how, you know, I see continuing to show up and to persevere in the face of what I know is often really challenging, you know. Although, you know, we look out from here and, of course, you all look like blissful Buddhas. You know, I'm very aware that that may not actually be your internal experience, you know. And that, you know, there's a lot of effort going on to to kind of just not run out of this room screaming, you know. And a lot of effort to just be with what's happening and, and really embrace it and really make that commitment to to stay so so steady. Um you know, and I, I see people who are you know, sitting with chronic pain, chronic illness, sitting with loss, sitting with grief, sitting with depression, sitting with anxiety, walking with them, and yet really, really, moment to moment, really learning to walk new pathways of kindness and compassion and wakefulness. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that none of us do this in order to stay the same. We don't do this to be more intimately acquainted with our chaotic minds or, you know, aching knees. You know, there is something else that is going on here in terms of a dedication to transformation. Now, this dialogue... In this dialogue between mindfulness and wise effort, both of these threads are really rooted in a common bond. And the common bond of mindfulness and wise effort is a genuine commitment to healing. It's a genuine commitment to bringing suffering to an end through understanding and ending its causes. And through that understanding, 
fostering and nurturing the seeds of peace, the seeds of compassion, the seeds of wakefulness that lie in each of our hearts. And what we do here is really not easy because we are really concerned with radically transforming the shape of our hearts and minds. There's a a little piece that most of you will be familiar with, but I'm going to read it to you anyway because it really speaks to this journey. The autobiography in five short chapters. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. Now, we might notice that that movement from chapter 1 to chapter 5 is a bit of a journey, isn't it? To actually walk down another street. For most of us, this is a journey. Now, 2,500 years ago, when you read the early texts, we really come to see how, you know, although geographies change, you know, conditions change, cultures change, we really come to see how the human mind is really not so different today as it was then. That each of us has a personal story that's unique to us. The ways in which the conditions and the events and the experience of our lives have really come together to shape the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world, have shaped our views, our beliefs, the way that the conditions and the events of our lives have shaped each of our sense of capacity or incapacity, of worthiness or unworthiness, of possibility or impossibility. Now, very much part of this path of mindfulness and insight is is really dedicated to us understanding and to making peace with that personal story. But you have probably noticed over this couple of days that as we come together, say, in groups and, and listen to one another, You have probably already picked it up, how many of the patterns, many of the habits that create confusion and and suffering are really not just personal territory. It's helpful not to take them so personally. We see how very universal often are the threads and the beliefs in in, in, in insufficiency, the, the patterns of aversion, of abandonment, the patterns of flight and fear, the reactions of anxiety and judgment. 
and the compulsiveness of many of other stories that we find ourselves in. But also in listening to others, one also appreciates, I think, the universality of the longing for happiness, the longing for peace, the longing for acceptance, the longing for compassion and generosity. Now, so I think really so important to kind of track in our own experience, in our own days, these shifts that we go in and out of, the moments when we feel very present, very mindful, very awake, and the moments when that seems to disappear, and to really just notice those shifts and how really they differ, how they affect how we see the world, how we see ourselves. But we do often begin really to see that in the absence of mindfulness, that patterns of confusion and, and distress grow and deepen. And their outcome is often quite predictable. And sometimes, you know, and very much more and more, as, as our practice deepens, we, in the midst of those moments of disappearing or moments of forgetfulness, we have those moments of remembering, of coming back, if you notice that. It's, it's almost like something kind of arises inwardly and we remember again that we can be awake, that we can learn to soften around some of what we're experiencing, that we can find some ex- acceptance and in the light of that mindfulness, I often get the sense of how some of the, the grip of these emotional habits that are difficult often begin to ease. We learn we can bring mindfulness to places of illness and pain in the body and sometimes forge very new relationships of kindness and inclusivity. And you know there's a deep relief in those moments. I think there's a deep sense of relief and kind of just sensing that flight and abandonment are not the only avenues available to us in the face of the challenging and the difficult. And it's almost those moments of remembering, those moments of of really being awake within experience. It's almost like they're, they're just a little taste of freedom. Have you noticed that? It's almost like a little taste of, ah, that capacity to breathe out, to not feel so imprisoned. And yet, (coughs) we recognize too that, just as the Buddha really recognized 2,500 years ago, that some of our emotional patterns feel so repetitive, so historical, so habitual, so stubborn, so intractable, so repetitive, that they have actually really come to shape almost our sense of identity or sense of description or self-description. It's like people describe themselves by their patterns. You know? I'm an anxious type. And I'm a greedy type. I'm an aversive type. You know, I'm a contracted type. It's a big statement. You know, recently I was in the post office where in the town where I live nearby. And I was just going up to the counter to pay for something, and I saw this young woman who I felt had 
come from the other direction, but she was at the cash register before me. And so I said to her, well, you know, please go ahead, you know. You were here first. And she looked at me like, like in the, almost like this total sense of shock. And she said, she says, I can't believe she said, you said that. She said, I am the kind of person who people always butt in front of in queues. <laughs> I just found that so it, it was so definite, you know, it was so absolute. I'm the kind of person who people always butt in front of in queues. I mean, it was like the, the statement of a life, you know, this statement of invisibility or this statement of, of somehow unworthiness. The kind of person people always ignore, almost as if uh, the absoluteness of it, almost uh, describing a kind of life sentence. Now, it is within this realm of the most intractable and the most stubborn patterns and emotional habits the Buddha speaks about the vital importance of the dialogue between mindfulness and wise effort. Now, there are a couple of discourses that actually really speak very directly to this dialogue. Now, it's very important to understand, when the Buddha is speaking about this dialogue with wise effort, wise effort is not a camouflaged aversion mechanism. It's not an aversion mechanism to, to get rid of what we can't accept or embrace because that is always kind of the near enemy of wise effort. Is this kind of undercurrent or this disguised uh, aversion. Um, but wise effort is actually speaking about the ways of engaging with the stubborn and, and the embedded, of learning to walk new pathways. Wise effort is so dedicated to bringing suffering and struggle to an end. It's recognizing that just because something has a long history, it does not mean that it has an equally long future. And that is so critical. That is what mindfulness is really concerned with. It is always a path of immediacy to see each moment, each heart moment, each mind moment, that the mind is living in that state of potentiality, transformed by our engagement with it, transformed by what is cultivated in the moment. We don't do this practice for a later peace. We don't do this practice for a future compassion, for a postponed kindness, for some distant wakefulness. We do this practice for a present moment cultivation of compassion, wakefulness, understanding. Again, that phrase of the Buddha that what we frequently dwell upon becomes a shape of our mind. The shape of our mind becomes a shape of our self-view. The shape of our self-view becomes a shape of our world. And that's what we're concerned with. It's the shape of our mind, our heart in this moment. So I'd like to explore a couple of these texts that describe this dialogue, uh, the ways of responsiveness 
because that's really what wise effort is, is responsiveness to some of these most emotionally embedded patterns of reactivity. Now, this list, I mean, many of you are at all familiar with the Buddhist teaching, you know that it's often presented in the form of these lists, you know. Um, it, it was a way of remembering, you know, you put things together in a list and you repeat them and you recite them over and over again and eventually you remember them. But the, this, these lists are actually very pragmatic. They're very experiential. And this list of responsiveness, like many of the lists in the Buddhist teaching, of course does begin with mindfulness. No surprise there. Because the Buddha pretty much recognized that mindfulness is the core foundational quality of all transformation. That mindfulness is the midwife of insight. The quality that establishes a relational, befriending way of being with all events and experiences. Just now. Just now. Mindfulness not concerned with the history of a pattern. It's not concerned with the potential future. It's concerned with this thought, this sadness, this pain, this loss, this obsession, in its present moment appearance, establishing ourselves in the body, in the mind, in feeling, in the midst of a life which holds both the lovely and the unlovely. Reb Anderson, a much-loved Zen teacher, he says, Buddhas don't sit in the suburbs of suffering. They sit downtown. And that's where we sit. That's where we are. In the downtown of our bodies, minds, life, thoughts. And this is where we're asked to be respond. Responsive. Now, sometimes you'll notice that there's a certain kind of alchemy uh, within mindfulness through, through just that willingness to be present with what is. Sometimes that, that's, that's, you, you find you know, that sometimes things just kind of release and soften when they're just held within the light of mindfulness. But what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? And I just want to point out, you know, there's some curious point, and I'm not quite sure, into the kind of vocabulary of mindfulness, this com- comes a statement, you know, just stay with what is. It's become a kind of commandment. Be with what is, yeah? Well, actually, you know, and actually Buddhist teaching doesn't really do that, you know. It's actually recognizing that, yeah, you know, sometimes you really hold experience in the light of mindfulness, and it just changes its shape, you know, often, well, usually because we've actually abandoned the path of abandonment, is why. But if you notice, sometimes things just stay there. <laughs> They're kind of repetitive, you know, or they, or they feel kind of quite stuck and, and uncooperative. And here we find in this text of Around Wise Effort that the Buddha uses this phrase, like, it keeps coming up right through the whole text. It says, and if it still arises. If it still arises. I wonder if how many of you here have had patterns that still arise. Huh? It still arise. The anxiety still arises. You know, The judgments still arise. The obsessions still arise. You know, The aversion still arise. 
It doesn't use the word again. It doesn't use the word, you know, oh, here it is again. You know, I'm anxious again, I'm anxious again. It uses this phrase, if it still arises. Then he would say, okay, we started with mindfulness. He says, if it still arises, go for some investigation. Use the surgeon's probe. Go beneath the labels, the, the words of anger, fear, resentment, agitation. How does it feel? What is the body of aversion? What is the body of agitation? What is the body of loneliness? What is the body of anxiety? We really get a sense of how when we use these, these words, you know, these descriptions, it's almost like they are describing a state. Fixed, static. But when we begin to investigate, of course, the body of loneliness, the body of obsession, we really begin to sense how all of this is processed. We move into more verb form. And Pali, the language of the early text, is a language of, of verbs. Body, mind, sense of self, all of it is process. And that process is registering in sensations, in emotions, in moods, in thoughts that color perception, that create assumptions of self. But this process is all kind of gets held together, gets made solid, gets turns into a state, gets turned into a, a, a description, primarily through clinging. I'm the kind of person who people always but in front of. Hmm? Process has got turned into a state. So with investigation, we begin actually maybe to un go underneath those labels and what feels so stuck, actually, we begin to see actually is not so stuck. It's a little bit more fluid. We, we sense the changes and the arising, the fading, the changing in our thoughts, our sensations, our moods, already shifting into something else. And we, we are able to say, you know, sadness is happening, loneliness is happening. Lessening that identification. This is, process is far more approachable territory than I'm sad, you know, or I'm angry. But, of course, then the list goes on. It still arises. Our inner landscape, particularly the landscape of repetitive reactions and emotions, this is not usually news to us, is it? I mean, did anybody kind of sit down in this retreat and suddenly discover something they'd never had any inkling of before? Gosh, I didn't know I had a version. Gosh, I didn't know I obsessed. It's really news, is it? I mean, we don't actually have to sit down with our eyes closed most of the time to figure out what our emotional patterns of reactivity are. are. And, you know, many Westerners who come to practice, they come already with a lot of insight. You know, in our culture, I think we're encouraged to be, you know, as much as we can be, somewhat reflective and, and self-aware. But if it still arises, the Buddha suggests, you might reflect on the outcomes. You might reflect on the outcomes. What are the outcomes of, of inhabiting 
the landscape of, of aversion or, or resentment or obsession. What, what is the outcome? I mean, do we expect a different outcome? What's going to be the outcome of dwelling in anxiety and bitterness? That knowing that what we feed will grow, this is an eternal law, that what we feed will grow. And generally our emotional habit patterns are fed through thought, through dwelling, through preoccupation, sometimes with demanding solutions or explanations, that what we feed will grow. If we really could sense the outcomes, we might be willing to really ask ourselves, does this lead to affliction or the end of affliction this is not about judgment this is not about bad or wrong but discerning discerning does this particular fear does this particular impulsiveness obstruct the deepening of happiness or understanding does it create ongoing struggle and affliction does it lead away from freedom discernment is such a necessary part of clear comprehension It's the basis of wise effort. It's the basis of wise action. I mean, think of this in a wider level in the world. You know, I mean, we all know we live in a world where there's a lot of injustice, where there's a lot of inequality, where at times there's a lot of of harshness and and cruelty and, and suffering that asks for our engagement. It asks for our engagement. You know, if you walk outside and you see some terrible situation, that situation certainly asks you to be mindful of it. That's the beginning, isn't it? But the world is not much help by me just being mindful. The world is helped by my willingness to engage what mindfulness reveals, dedicated to bringing suffering to an end. And this too is true, I think, in our inner world discerning what leads to suffering and how do we engage with bringing it to an end. I think one of the near enemies, uh, you know, we often use this expression a lot in this teaching, the near enemy is a quality that kind of looks like the quality we're cultivating, but actually it's not. So the near enemy of mindfulness, I would say, is passivity or endurance. You know, oh, it's just how things are. You know, just being with things the way they are. That's actually not really part of that path of transformation. You know, the path of transformation is seeing what is and engaging with what is on the basis of that discernment. The Buddha says if it still arises, obviously, you know, so it's a long path for a lot of people. You know, it wasn't just a simple be mindful. If it still arises, the Buddha says, one of these, you know, these areas of habitual patterns, take your attention elsewhere. Now, actually, this is not something unfamiliar in eight-week programs. Often people are encouraged in the midst of obsession, come back to the body, take your attention elsewhere. Use a breathing space, take your attention elsewhere. You know, don't just stick in there. Take your attention elsewhere. If we're lost in obsession or judgment or preoccupation, we might actually come back to the body. We might cultivate intention rather than compulsively driven attention. In the midst of contractedness, we might take our attention to listening, to a bigger sense of space. 
It's really learning that responsiveness of when it is wise to step out. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, a student I was working with, you know, she was about to go into hospital to have a mastectomy. And, and, you know, she was a really dedicated practitioner. And she said, well, you know, these days before I go into hospital for the surgery, I'm really going to meditate all the time. But could really sense quite understandably, you know, the, the anxiety, the contractedness, the worry about the surgery. And I said to her, you know, I don't think you should spend tomorrow on your cushion. I think you should go to an art gallery. Do something you love. You know, do something outside of this, this, this kind of, you know, shrinking field of contractedness. It's almost a way of reclaiming the wholeness of a moment. Because you actually see, when you get very caught in obsessive or anxious thinking and aversion or envy or shame, notice how your perception becomes so selective. You know, you notice everything you need to envy in other people. You know, you notice everything you need to be ashamed of. Or you notice everything that's imperfect. And we really see how in, in some of these contracted spaces, how we're very inclined and prone to seize upon the fragments, the particulars of another person or an experience or ourselves and mistake it to be the whole. And so sometimes what is happening by taking our attention elsewhere to parts of our experience that have been lost or forgotten or dismissed, it's almost like reclaiming the whole, widening the field of our awareness. Yes, anxiety is happening, but so too is the sound of the bird. (coughs) Pain is happening, but so too is the sunlight on the trees. Difficulties are occurring, but here are the parts of my body that are well, knowing that there is this coexistence, that is one does not exclude the other. We're less prone to mistake our conclusions, our assumptions, to be the whole truth. This is getting ridiculous. (laughs) I'll go on for a little bit longer. Um, If it still arises... If it still arises, cultivate the skillful and the healing qualities that are missing or absent. Metta is really said to be the antidote to aversion. Metta also for aversion. Compassion is the antidote to our fear of suffering. Joy is the antidote counters the tendency to see only that which is broken or imperfect. Equanimity counters our tendency to live in the extremes of elation and despair, the highs and the lows, the excitements and the depressions. Learning to cultivate spaciousness in the midst of contractedness. Commitment is said to be the antidote to doubt. Perseverance counters shakiness. Calmness counters agitation. Kindness counters harshness. What we are really discovering here is this capacity to cultivate what is really healing, what is really liberating, what is really awakening, and we do it in the midst of the difficult. 
It's not when that goes away. You know, it's not when that disappears. But actually in the midst of it, cultivating that capacity, cultivating the qualities of heart and mind that are healing, liberating, but that have just been forgotten in that moment. And I think one of the great gifts of practice is is that growing confidence in that capacity to cultivate in the midst of, in the midst of all things. If it still arises, um, if it still arises as a metaphor that's used in the text, I, and I want you to hear this with, with a great deal of carefulness, um, because it sounds initially kind of graphic and even a little bit brutal. Um, it's about restraint. And, you know, there's a difference between restraint and suppression. You know, suppression is really just about, I don't want to know, you know, and so I'm pushing this down. Restraint as part of mindfulness is wanting to know and knowing, but not being willing to engage in that which continues to create and recreate distress. And so it's really the the analogy that's used is is, uh, (laughs) press your tongue against the roof of your mouth and don't go there. It's an interesting one, isn't it? This is not recommending, actually, something harsh, but actually an embodiment of insight. You know, sometimes we have understood everything there is to understand about a pattern of anxiety or aversion or or envy or uh, self-blame. You know, sometimes we've understood everything there is to understand. We we know maybe are the generational. I mean, I know the generational inheritance of impatience in my family. You know, I know how far back it goes. I don't need to understand anything more about how I came to be an impatient person at one point in my life. I'm much improved, by the way. But <laughs> but you know, sometimes we know the conditions that have led to blame. We know the conditions that have led to shame. You know, we, we know the background of our patterns of self-abandonment. We know the conditions in our life that have led us to feel at times unworthy in the present. We know the stories behind some of our obsessions and our preoccupations with security or identity or need. You know, there's just no more insight to be had. We know it. The well is dry. Sometimes it's useful to recognize that. You know, it's not like we need to probe for a little bit more explanation or it's not like we need to go around that loop one more time of obsession or preoccupation or blame or judgment and think, you know, I'm just going to get that elusive missing piece of insight that's going to make this go away. Sometimes we know it. We actually kind of know everything there is to know about it. And sometimes actually what we're left with is a habit. The habit of obsession. You know, the habit of, 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 of storytelling. You know, the habit of, of envy or the habit. Sometimes we're just left with a habit. It's almost like that neural pathway, you know, has been kind of dug so deep. It's kind of like almost has a life of its own. But there isn't any more, anything, any kind of missing piece of insight. And we're just kind of left with the habit of it. So, you know, sometimes a sense like maybe I just don't need to go there. 
I mean, have you ever had that thought? You know, you know, maybe you see a kind of pattern arising in the mind. You're about to sort of jump into the judgment train, you know, and you could, you know, you can almost see it coming, can't you? You know what's going to happen if you jump on the judgment train. Yeah, you know, it, it's almost a kind of attraction to it, a sort of magnetism. Um, and you know actually why that kind of self-judgment is there. And sometimes you can see it arising something. Maybe I don't need to go there. You know, maybe I don't need to do. Maybe I don't need to do it. You know, maybe there's some possibility of choice here. And this is where the Buddha says, you know, press your tongue against the roof of your mouth. Don't go there. It's kind of like how the breathing space is often used in mindfulness-based applications. You know, you can see the world being born, and you breathe out, and you think, maybe I don't need to go there. It's that kind of restraint rooted in understanding, rooted in kindness, rooted in compassion. It's why so much in the in the suttas I mentioned the other day, you know, breathing in, calming the agitations, breathing out, calming the agitations, knowing that what we feed will grow. Now restraint in my experience is actually the forerunner of things letting go, of letting go itself. It's not that I let go, but certainly what effort does is to cultivate the conditions inwardly that allow for letting go, that allow for releasing to happen with kindness, taking care of the well-being of our hearts and minds with calmness and stillness and insight, really releasing the compulsiveness of ill will and fear and need. And the last one in this list the Buddha suggested, if it still arises, ask for help. And I think this is a very useful one. You know, I think sometimes in in our world... We can have such an exaggerated sense of responsibility. You know, it's all up to me to do this. You know, we can, it can always be a kind of pride, isn't it? You know, it's all up to me. I'm going to let go. I'm going to do this. I'm going to understand this. But, you know, in reality, we walk this path together. And there are moments, you know, we, we learn in kindness with kindness to reach out to another who needs help in that moment. And we learn to receive the compassion and the help and support of another. It's always kind of really examining this path, the qualities of awakening (coughs) and their near enemies. We see how the near enemy of mindfulness is a kind of endurance or resignation. The near enemy of effort is striving and fixing, disguised aversion. But what we're really talking about here is wise effort and wise mindfulness. Concerned with understanding what is in each moment. Concerned with exploring the possibilities of each moment. Concerned with the ending of despair and suffering. (coughs) Excuse me. Concerned with realizing the depths of the human heart and mind. 